Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, you are going to meet another Tour Divide finisher, Brent Goldstein, and you're also going to learn about a wonderful organization called First Descents. Stay tuned. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Brent Goldstein, welcome to Alligator Preserves. Hello, Laurel. And I really thank you for taking time out of your day, because I know that you just came from picking up your packet for the Leadville Trail 100 mountain bike race. Correct. And that's tomorrow morning. Correct. And you're going to be back here at this house at what time tomorrow morning? 5.30 a.m. 5.30 a.m. My annual visit. Yes. Yeah. And this will be your which race? Your 12th LT100 100, race. Yep. Okay. I want to start first by talking about the Tour Divide because I know that you just completed it. Yes. You completed it on what day? Finished uh, July 7th, I think. July, the night of July 7th. July 7th. So it or maybe it was July, July 7th or 8th. Yeah. It, was the, it was the end of the 29th day and 13th hour and 56th minute. But who's counting? Who's counting? You were counting the whole way because you had a goal of finishing. I had an original goal, and then the goal seemed shot about halfway through, and then we kind of re-initiated the goals later in the race when we realized we had a chance to actually do it. And and this is we. We'll get into the we. The first question I always ask ultra racers is why? Well, just like what did Sir Edmund Hillary climb Everest because it's there? No, mine was a... It was just, it's kind of a progression of things that I've continued to do and challenge myself. And this was the top of the progression, really. The top of the progression. So I, I My know bucket list you... is now empty. Oh, no. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I'll come up with something. There's Everest, right? I don't want to climb. No. I like to bike. <laughs> so you did this also to raise funds for First Descents. Yes. Can you tell our listeners about that organization? How far back do you want me to go? Well, what was the genesis of it? Who started it? Well, a professional kayaker named Brad Ludden started it in 19, uh, 2000, around 2000 or 2001. His sister had cancer and he wanted to do something for her. So he took her kayaking and saw this um, amazing metamorphosis, I guess, in her um, from going through that. And he came up with the idea that this is something he should be introduced to anyone with cancer. And then it just slowly became a charity, basically, an organization that ran these kayak camps for young adult or for cancer survivors. And then he picked a demographic being young adults, 18 to 39. And they started with a couple kayak camps and it's just expanded through the years. And I can talk later about where we've become, but it's basically we are an organization that provides outdoor outdoor adventures for young adult, young adult cancer survivors, patients, basically anybody coping with cancer. And Grace Ragland, whom I interviewed a while ago, she has multiple sclerosis and she completed the tour divide also. She mentioned that people with MS might also... We're doing a pilot program for young adults with multiple sclerosis this month, actually. Wow. This will be our first one. We'll see how it goes. And we'd like to expand into other diseases. We think what we do is is beneficial to anybody that's okay. going through something. Okay, that's that's fabulous. And now it's not just kayak camps. It's we do kayak, rock climbing, ice climbing, um, surfing. We send uh, groups out. To, they go to Europe. They do trekking trips. Um, 
Biking? Uh, not biking yet, but we're looking into it. Oh, okay. Um, it, and we have alumni trips where people that have gone through the programs get together and they kind of pick an adventure. So if they decide we want to do a bike adventure, we'll help put it together for them. So we're kind of like a, a backroads for, or backroads make a wish outward bound for cancer survivors. Awesome. That's amazing. And how much money did you raise doing? Uh, to date, I'm at about $181,000 and I'm trying to get to two hundred. That's fabulous. Oh my gosh. And we'll let our listeners know how they can help you reach that goal. Thank you. And a little bit. So the your previous biggest physical challenge before doing the tour divide would have been what? The 11-100 every year. Okay. So do you want? here's where I can tell that story if you want. Uh, sure. Hopefully it's not too long-winded. So in 2006, my best and oldest friend was named Alan Goldberg, and he was a childhood cancer survivor. And from his cancer experiences, he went into philanthropy and cancer basically as his life's work. He went to Harvard in 2005 and got a master's in public, uh, either public policy or whatever it is that gets you into nonprofit. Then he took a job with Lance Armstrong Foundation, um, spent a year there and realized he didn't like working in a big bureaucratic organization. And that's when he ran across Brad Ludden, who had first ascents. So the two of them hit it off. And Brad said, why don't you come run our company? We're, you know, only four or five years old. We'd like to go national someday, but we're, we have a budget of $250,000, five yeah. camps, come take over and, and, and grow it in your image. So at the time, First Ascents was based in Vail, Colorado, and Alan moved there thinking this would be an amazing opportunity. Two weeks after he arrived in Vail in, in July 2006, he started having back pains. Mm. Alan was an Ironman triathlete, marathon runner, ultra runner, did all that stuff. And he just assumed it was pains associated with his athletic endeavors. Mm -hmm. But when the pains didn't go away... He uh, went and got checked out, and Vail has an amazing cancer facility, Shaw Cancer Center, and he right. went up and met with some doctors there and learned, uh, unfortunately, that his cancer had returned after 27 years. So oh, he was boy. 39, 38 years old, 39 years old at the time. So he called me. We were talking. I mean, I was one of his biggest, uh, I guess, proponents of him moving to Vail and taking this job. So I said, what can I do? I mean, I, I felt awful. I mean, your best friend has cancer again. And he said, well, I've got to do uh, you know, a year of chemo and radiation. I need something to look forward to and to train for. Next summer, I'd like you to come out and, and do an Ironman triathlon with me. So I kind of laughed and I said, you're fucking out of your mind. I, I don't run. I don't swim. And if, if you want to put me in a pool and give me a six pack, I'm happy sitting on a raft. That's not going to happen. I have flat feet. I don't run. So he said, yeah, I pretty much thought you were going to say that. So he said, you're still mountain biking, right? I said, yeah, I love to mountain bike, but I'd never ridden more than 10 or 15 miles. He said, all right, change it up. Next summer, I want you to come out and race the Leadville 100 mountain bike race with me, 2007. Again, I laughed at him. I said, I've never ridden more than 10 or 15 miles. How, do you, how am I going to do this? And I hemmed and hawed and, he, and I said, there's no way I can do it. And he said, you know, if I've got to do six months of chemo and radiation, you can train for this damn race and do it with me. I'm like, you're playing the cancer card already? And he said, yeah, but too soon? I'm like, yeah, a little too soon, but I'll do it. So, you know, once it dawned on me what I was doing and and uh, and I told my wife about it, I realized I needed to do it for more than just him. I, I thought we need to have a bigger purpose. I'm turning 40. Why don't we do it as a fundraiser for your foundation, which was First Ascents? And mm -hmm. at the time, I still knew nothing about it. So he said, that's great. Let's do it. I said, but first you have to make sure we're even in the race because they have a pretty hard lottery system to get through. Yes. So I said, you know, you played the cancer card on me and it worked. Why don't you go up and meet with Ken and Marilee who run the race and see if you can tell them the story and if they'll let us get in the race. And so he came up to Leadville in the fall of 2006 and met with them and told them the story. 
and they were taken by him. And they said, okay, we'll give you six spots for the race. You have to pay for them, but you don't have to go through the lottery. They're assured. So he called me back and said, we've got six spots. And I said, great. And I went out and got four other guys, twisted some major arms and a uh, different story. My, my friends call me the goader in chief, G-O-A-D, because I goad people into doing <laughs> yep, things. So yep. that was the, my first big goad was getting him to do the Leadville 100 with me. And that winter, Alan and I strategized all, all winter about how we can do this as a fundraiser. And we went out in the spring of 2007 and uh, put out a big email solicitation. And between uh, the six of us, mostly me, but we were able to raise about $85,000 around that first level 100. And I went through and did all the training and did the coaching and whatever to get ready for the thing and got off the couch and lost some weight. <sighs> and uh, my goal was simply to finish that first Leadville, right. try to get under 12 hours, get the big buckle and never do this again. Yeah. And even at mile 70 of that race, I was cramping and cursing everybody and saying, there's no way I will ever do this again. I can't believe Alan <laughs> did this to me. But I finished the race. He was there at the finish line. He didn't make it past the 40 mile cutoff. He was never a mountain biker. And I think he was just doing this to get me to do it. I don't think he had any expectations of succeeding in this race. And uh, he, he said at the finish, all right, well, I'm doing it next year. You can crew for me. I said, no problem. I'm not ever getting on a bike and doing this again. Sure enough, I slept that night, woke up the next morning. Let's see, I could have done this better and that better and this better. I'm coming back next year. I've heard that it gets into your blood. Oh, it's crazy. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's like childbirth where you forget the pain of delivering a baby because the next morning I'd already forgotten all the, all the pain I was in. All I could think about were the cool things that I did and how I accomplished it, and I couldn't wait to do it again. Anyway, it's a long story, and it continues. Once I'd raised that money, that was over 25, almost 30% of First Descent's budget. So wow. immediately they said, you, you're on the board. You're on the board. So it, they, it, they, they, they you're going to ride every year and you're going to raise at least this much well, every year. They said, you're going to ride next year. I said one year at a time, but I, I joined the board that fall of 2008, uh, 2007. And I said, I'll do this again. Let's do another big fundraiser next year. Let's make sure we get the spots again. And then I started getting involved with the charity itself. I mean, more just strategizing with Alan, 30,000 feet, working on budgets. And I, I still didn't really know what the special sauce was. I was just doing it for my friend. Right. During the 2007 and 8 spring, uh, fall and winter, he became more ill and less healthy looking. And he constantly would tell me, it's all the treatment. I'm going to get better, but it gets worse before it gets better. And I kind of believed him. I mean, he'd already survived cancer once and he was a tough yeah. guy, but it was getting noticeably more ill health. And as the winter went by, uh, we worked on the next fundraiser. We did all the things. But when May came around, he came to Washington and he just looked awful. And I said to Lisa, there's, there's something going on here that he's not telling us. And sure enough, it, whether he knew or not, it was way worse than he ever let on. Mm -hmm. And in June 2008, he passed away, mm -hmm. and which was a shock to all of us, um, including his family, who didn't know he was as, as dire. Okay. After his passing, we found out that it, had, it was actually horrible two years before, and they were amazed that he made it two years. So he basically wow. hid it for all those years. Yeah. So anyway, First Ascents was growing. I did the race again in his memory at that point, and we raised 120000 in 2008. And at that point, First Ascents was really starting to grow. And I was kind of becoming, I guess because of Alan, I was kind of becoming the, the leader within the board. And in 2009, they named me chairman of the board. I'll skip all the rest of the years, but I've now done Leadville. You know, this will be my 12th time. We've raised over a million and a half dollars for First Ascents through these 11 years. And First Ascents has grown from that 300, 250,000, 300,000 five camp program in 2006 to a $4 million budget organization today that runs 120 experiences, you know, around the country, mostly, you know, some around the world. And, and we try to touch as many young adults with cancer as we can. So that's the First Ascents story and my involvement. 
And so we, we might as well tell our listeners now how they can help support First Ascents right now or become involved in the programs. Well, there's several ways. Like any nonprofit, the best way to support is money. Money leads directly to growth. We're one of those few charities that where every dollar goes in goes directly to somebody's experience. It's not like a big behemoth organization that's going to research or not that those are bad, but you really are making a direct impact when you donate money to First Ascent. So that's first and foremost, the best thing. And then there's other ways to just volunteer. If you're a, a medic or a photographer and you have a week of your life that you want to spend. You or know, a chef or a sous chef. Yeah, chef or, or a sous chef. And you have a week of your life that you want to spend uh, having an amazing experience, volunteer for one of our programs. And I'll even go back to this point too. Back in 2008, after Alan passed away, I still wasn't sure whether we were going to be involved with this organization because I didn't really know what it was. My wife, thanks Lisa. to Alan, Lisa, Lisa. Shout my, out to my Lisa. beautiful wife, Lisa, shout out to my <laughs> wife, Lisa, was supposed to go work at a camp in Montana as a volunteer in 2008 with Alan. So when Alan passed away, Lisa said, I, I don't think I have the emotional wherewithal to go up and, and volunteer and be at this camp. And I said to her, you know, we, we've put a lot of time and effort in this first year. We've, we've gone out to all our friends. We've raised money and we still don't really know what this is about. I really need you to do this to see if this is something our family should continue to support so heavily. Mm-hmm. So I, through her tears, I convinced her to go to that camp. And, and it was the most emotional, amazing experience of her life. She kept a daily blog, which she sent to me. She had me crying every night. And she just came back saying, this is what we're doing. This is, this is what our family's legacy is going to be, is working with this organization. And since then, I've gone to about six camps. And it's what she felt was exactly the same. Every time I go, I'm amazed that sometimes I feel like I get more out of the camp than the participants themselves. It's just that magical and I can't totally go into what makes it so, but it really is. Seeing a, the change of a, of a frail cancer survivor, cancer patient who comes in, you know, scared of whatever activity we're going to do, kayaking, rock climbing, whatever. And by the end of the week, they come out full of life. And even if they're in terminal mode, they come out just... They've done something huge. They've done something huge. They they've overcome. They, they haven't let cancer define them. They've let cancer just spur them to do something else, something they might never have done. And they leave, they leave a different person. And it's so cool to see what that's like over a course of a week. Gonna make me cry. Sorry. All right. So you decide to ride a bike, 2,000, what, 782, something like that. Yeah, it was, it was supposed to be 2,765, but there were a couple shortcuts this year. So we ended at like 2,731. How does one prepare for something that... Uh, I don't, I still can't tell you. <laughs> I basically, there's, there's no way to prepare for that. So I, I just did my training this year, like I did for Leadville every year. So you figured that you had to ride a hundred miles a day, probably average. My, or? my initial goal was to do a hundred a day and finish in about 27 days, but I had no idea. I really, I mean, I came into this, I've never bike packed before. I've never done a block of three days in a row where I've ridden. I mean, I've done Leadville every year, but it's always a one-day race, and I go home and one have and dinner done. and sleep well and right. get a massage the next day. <laughs> so I've never, you know, I had so many friends tell me, why don't you do like a five-day bike pack trip and make sure you like make it? Make sure you want to do and that, that's not the way I do things. I mean, even the first time I did Leadville, I had friends say, why don't you do a 25-mile race or a 50-mile race? Yeah. And I'm like, no, I want to no, go right to the top right and in. figure it out. Did you study any other racers who who had done that before, or yeah, were so there I, any other blogs out there? That yeah, so you, I guess I guess I could go back a little bit. There's a movie called Ride the Divide. I think Grace mentioned it. That it was a documentary about this race that came out in 2009 or so. Okay. And back then there were like 16 people that did the race, 
And so it came around to independent theaters around the country. And my friend Gary Morris said, hey, this movie's showing. I live in Washington, D.C. And he said, there's a movie showing in Arlington at the Draft House. Why don't we go have some beers and watch this movie? So we went and watched it, and I'm just shaking my head during the whole thing, like, "Who are these people? They're crazy," <laughs> and they're and they're showing this ride. And and at one point, I'm like, "I would never do anything like this," but then in my subconscious, I'm like, "Wow, that would be a really cool thing to do someday." But I kind of just hid it back there. And then a couple years ago, a friend of mine who I met here in Leadville named Bonnie Gagnon, who back then I can't remember what her last name was, but she was uh, really sweet. I did some rides with her, and then she did the tour divide in 2016 and, and posted on Facebook, and I kind of followed along. And seeing her do it kind of made me feel like this is something I could do. So then I came out of the back back portions of my subconscious and it kind of actually <laughs> took a place on my bucket list. But I still didn't tell really anybody because they would think I was nuts. And then last summer, Lisa and I were driving. We just dropped our daughter off at University of Texas. for a, She was a freshman there last year. And they had a, a weekend in June where they were getting introdu- introduced to the campus. And we were driving from Austin to Colorado. And in Texas, we're driving along and she says, aren't you getting bored with Leadville yet? And I kind of thought for a second. I said, you know, it's funny. I kind of am. <sighs> and she said, well, I, I know you. You've got something on your bucket list. What is it? Uh-huh. I, I said, you really want to know? And she said, should I, should I not know? I said, yeah, well, there's this. I told her about the movie and I said, I've been kind of holding it in. I said, and I have a friend who's done this, this race, this crazy race from Banff, Alberta to the Mexico border. And I explained the whole thing to her. And she kind of sat there for a second and I'm sitting here thinking she's going to veer off the road. And she's, and I said, but yeah, maybe it's something I'd like to do five or six years from now when the kids are out of the house and, you know, I could take a couple friends and we could go do that. And she thought a few more minutes again, as we're driving, I'm just waiting for an answer. And she said, you know, you're turning 50 in September. I said, yeah. She said, Ooh. Why don't I said, she said, why don't you just do it next summer? She suggested it. I said, are you out of your mind? Ooh, yeah. She good said, job, Lisa. she said, do it. I, I wasn't even thinking about it. I was just, I mean, I was thinking about, like I said, five, six years down the road. And she said, why don't you do it next summer? You're not getting any younger. (laughs) And I thought for a second, then I looked at her and I said, who's the boyfriend? (laughs) She laughed. And then I laughed. And then I kind of thought about it some more. I'm like, oh my God, I might actually do this. So the minute she had agreed and I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And then I, of course I said, okay, before she could change her mind or before she could do some research to find out what it was all about. Um, I, I went into heavy research mode last summer, basically in July. I started reading any books that were about it, any blogs that were about it. In the fall, with, in September, I had a phone call with Bonnie where I spent an hour and a half with a notepad and filled out eight pages of notes about everything I could think of, every question I can ask. Yeah. And then a lot of the preparation was buying gear. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a camper. Right. I slept in a tent maybe once in 25 years. And so I, I just started researching, looking at there's like four different face, Facebook pages that are tour divide pages, bike packing pages, adventure pages. So I'm reading everything about the best headlights and the best hubs for your tires and the best tent versus bivy and all, every question you could possibly ask. And then going on Amazon.com and bikepacking.com and backpacker.com and reading reviews on every single piece of equipment. So I mean, like the, the quilt sleeping bag that I ended up buying was the result of three hours of research, reading, reading wow. reviews, whether yeah. I should do that versus an enclosed sleeping bag, uh-huh. the mat, you know, the, the ratings. I knew nothing about ratings, but there's insulated ratings right. on mats and how it works with your quilt. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I spent hundreds of hours literally for every item on the pack. So that was that was half the preparation. And like I said, the training part, I was just doing what I normally do for Leadville, play ice hockey and, and train for just being as strong as I can. So you had to get a brand new bike. I did have to the get a brand new bike. used bike, which I bought after extensive research brand new used bike what yeah. what brand i got a salsa timberjack okay i mean there were several reasons good heavy bike it's a hard tail 
and it has front suspension. A lot of people go with, there's some other salsa brands, mm-hmm. Salsa Fargo, which is a rigid front. And I, I wanted suspension in the front. And then I massively threw out my back in December and wasn't even sure I'd be able to do the ride. So I thought I better have a bike that has big tires. And I got a Thudbuster seat post that gives me a little suspension. And between the front, the seat post, I got a, a Brooks saddle for apparently for comfort. I was doing everything I could because I was nervous about my back. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting like 2.6 inches tires. I actually was at three inch tires and I, I, sure, I got smaller ones a week before the race. Huh. But I wanted the biggest bike and heaviest bike that from, for back protection, okay. which I would do totally differently now. But um, ah. I would do something totally lighter, much smaller tires. But those are things I learned on the race. But that's what it, it was, Salsa Timberjack. Okay. Was there one piece of gear that you took aside from the bike that you couldn't have done without? Well, water. Oh, my! I'll make it a fun one. My my JBL Bluetooth speaker. Okay, why? Because I love music and right. I have to have music when I ride. Otherwise, I go crazy. So I had the speaker on my attached basically to my front uh, bag and I had music going the entire ride. How many uh, hours worth of music did you, rec- did I you had, download? I mean, I have so many stories of how I came up with playlists. I put out Facebook posts. Okay, everyone give me your best soulful <laughs> song. And I create a playlist. All right, everyone give me your best song that makes you smile. And I create a playlist. And I had like 40 playlists, including show tunes. I um, love it. Both two types of show tunes. I had show tunes with lyrics and show tunes that was purely just instrumental. Oh, my gosh. I had inspirational playlists. I had rock playlists. I had quiet playlists. I had crooners playlists. I had a... Um, one playlist that was all acoustic, one that was all cover songs. I mean, just anything I could think do of. Do you sing? I do not, thankfully, for other people. <laughs> you didn't sing along with there were a couple play. There were a couple places on the tour where I, I would belt out lyrics when no one was around me, just to re- as a release Nice for just a few songs. It was like The Doors' L.A. Woman came on. I was just screaming it some, somewhere in New Mexico. So when, in that 30-day span, when did you think, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Um, day two. Day two. Yeah. Was that your worst day? Worst day of my life. Why? It's hard to explain. So I, I made a bunch of rookie mistakes with this race. What are, what are rookie mistakes that um, people could learn from? So I've done Leadville all these years. Yeah. And I've always been very finicky about my nutrition and hydration and making sure I have the powders and making sure I have the right calories for each hour and the right um, amount of ounces per hour and and taking altitude into account and everything into account. And for this race, I kind of came in thinking, I'm not going to be riding that hard. So I don't have to worry about all that. I can just drink water and I'll stop and eat when I want to. And I don't have to worry about it. And then um, I took three weeks off before the race. And I was watching a lot of hockey because I'm a Washington Capitals fan. And it was a big Stanley Cup run. But that's a different story. <sighs> um, but I wasn't riding. And, uh, and it was by for purpose. I was told not to ride for those weeks right. leading up. So I come out. I come to Banff. And I just don't equate Banff with like Colorado, where I usually am acclimated. And but Banff is five, six thousand feet of elevation. So I didn't take into account that I was going from sea level to elevation. So I didn't do anything to get acclimated. I came in basically the night before. And the first day I had only planned to do 70 miles and then camp out. And that was my plan for months and months, you know, saying I want to start slowly. But the day we got there, the first day of the race was going to be 75 degrees and sunny and beautiful. And then days two through four were going to be lousy, snowy, sun, uh, rainy, cold. So I kind of changed the plan and said, you know what, I should get as far as I can the first day. So I picked the town of Elkford, which is 100 miles from the start. It's actually three miles past the turnoff to where the next part of the route goes. But I said it would do me good to, be, to ride as much as I could in the sun and stay in a bed that night. So I went out a little too hard to get the 100 miles in. I hadn't ridden 100 miles all year. Yeah. And by mile 50, I was cramping. I was dehydrated. I didn't get any electrolytes. All I was drinking was water. And by the time I got to Elkford at nine o'clock that night, I was completely spent, dehydrated, slightly 
dizzy, I guess, and not quite delirious, but definitely just not feeling good. Mm-hmm. And I got to sleep, had really bad pizza at this hotel, it was a horrible <laughs> night's sleep. Woke up the next morning and the first six, well, it's three miles back to where you turn off to go up this climb called Coco Claims. And Coco Claims is a six mile or five or six mile climb. The first few are rideable. And then you just basically hit a wall of rocks. To my fabulous listeners out there today, please consider supporting this one person operation. Your contributions will enable me to maybe buy myself a strong cup of tea each month and maybe even a gluten-free brownie. Go to patreon.com slash alligatorpreserves to see how you can support my work. And now stay tuned as Brent Goldstein drags us through the mud of his second most horrible day of the Tour Divide. And it's pushing a three-mile climb up, straight up, 30 degrees, no riding, just pushing up a scree field. Heavy uh, bike. Heavy bike, 50, 58 pounds fully loaded through hail and cold rain. And it was, and there's, oh, and they, just to make it even more fun, there were three avalanches during the winter that dropped big avalanche piles on the middle of the trail with pine trees and snow. And you're having to lift your bike over this stuff and push it. So that's all. And this is all while I'm dehydrated and feeling like crap. And then I made a mistake before I started using a backpack with a bladder. I had two water bottles on my, basically these little like, um, sacks that it hung from my handlebars. Mm -hmm. And then I had a two liter plastic water bottle, which I had on a, what's called an anything cage, which attaches to the front fork of your bike. I had that fully filled up and I figured, okay, when I finished the two water bottles, I would take the the big bottle, fill up the two water bottles, and that would give me four bottles worth. And that would carry me easily. And there's plenty of streams up there. So I got to a point about a mile and a half from the top of the first climb and I'm out of my two water bottles and I reached down to get water from my plastic bottle and it had cracked. It must have hit a rock or something. Oh. Totally empty. Oh. Meanwhile, it's so steep at that point, there's no more crossing streams. So I can't purify water. I can't do anything. So I go the next hour and a half with no water, already dehydrated, already feeling tired and exhausted and like crap. And I basically get to the top of this uh, climb and I'm like, I can't see straight. I'm, I'm weak and just feeling horrible. So I kind of stopped there to gather myself. One of the other racers there told me that there's a stream like a quarter mile down. So I get down to the stream and I, I have these droppers that I guess purify the water. You put eight drops in of A, point A, uh, whatever, bottle A, eight of bottle B. You wait 30 minutes and it's pure. And I couldn't wait 30 minutes. I just started drinking from the stream. Ooh. So then we keep descending. The weather still sucks. We get down to this long road that's like 40 miles from the town of Fernie. So I'm now kind of in the middle of the wilderness, nowhere. It's raining and the road is becoming mucky. One of the mistakes, not a mistake I made, but one of the one of the repercussions of choosing a big tire is it had a lot of tread, Ooh. which just scooped up the mud oh, and it threw it all into the drivetrain and my chain kept coming off and it, the whole bike just kept packing up with mud and to the point where I, I would take a stick and I'd just push all the mud out. And then once it was clean, I'd start riding again. And 20 feet later, it was all filled with mud again. And this is like... I would have been in tears. I pretty much was. And it was like when you take a on a big wet snow day and you take a snowball and you're at the top of the hill and you start rolling it down and it just oh. accumulates with snow. That was my bike with, with mud. mud. Oh. So after about the fifth time of trying to get through this crap, just threw my bike on the side of the road, sat down, put my head in my hands and was like, I, I don't know whether laugh, cry, go to sleep, pass out. And I sat there for about 10 minutes, just depleted and d- depressed. Um, were you alone? Was, was At that time I was alone, yeah. but there's you're still day two. So there's people out there. So people were riding because by. Because over 100 started 
182, I think, were at okay. the start line. So the, the day before, I ended up riding for about an hour with this woman named Jackie, just out on the trail, just kind of rode with her. Um, this was after riding an hour with Gary Johnson, by the way. And I got to know her, and she was really sweet. And she was stopping for the night at mile 80. So she, um, I, I left her a few hours before I got to Elkford. But anyway, as I'm sitting there with my hands, head in my hands, I hear a bike coming. And I look up, and it's Jackie. And she looks down at me. She says, Brent, are you all right? I said, no, I'm really not. I'm shaking my head. And she looks at me and she's like, you look horrible. You're pale. And she, she said, tell me what you've been eating and drinking. And I kind of explained everything. She said, dude, you're an idiot. I said, no, I'm just a first timer. <laughs> so she pulls out a, a, meanwhile, it's against race rules to accept help from anybody. But at this point, I really didn't care. She pulls out a, a bottle of nun tablets. And she says, first of all, take two of these, put it in your bottle, wait five minutes. You're going to chug that whole bottle. Take these other two, put them right in your mouth, chew on them swallow them, do anything. You got to get some electrolytes into your system. And then she gave me, I think some beef jerky or I don't even remember, but over a course of about 10 minutes, she kind of got me back to life. Okay. And I, I, I kind of use it. I'm writing a book about this now. And I use kind of the, uh, to explain this is if you remember in back to the future, Marty McFly's on the stage playing the guitar and he's uh -huh. slowly fading yes, away. Yes. And then suddenly the, 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 there's the kiss on the yes, dance floor and he yeah. pops right up. <laughs> I said, I, it wasn't quite me popping right up, but it was definitely a big improvement once I had electrolytes in the system and food. So she rode with me for pretty much the next two hours just to make sure I was okay. Still feeling horrible, but enough to get me down to Fernie. And when I get to Fernie, I checked into the first hotel I could see, threw my bike into the storage room, went to my room, threw my clothes into the bathtub, got on the phone, called my wife and said, Lisa, find me the first shuttle to the nearest airport. I'm out of here. Really? Yeah. Oh, I said, this isn't for me. You were going to quit? I, oh, I was so miserable. I just like, this was, I, forget it not being fun. It was horrible. Yeah. yeah. So I, and she's kind of talked me off the ledge. She said, all right, listen, just go take a warm shower. <laughs> Just chill out. So I got in the shower, and while that was happening, she called two of my best friends, Kevin Kane, who's ridden Leadville with me a whole bunch of times, one of my oldest friends, and another old friend from high school, Jeff Hoffman. She kind of explained to them what was going on. She's like, you better perk him up. So I get out of the shower, and there's texts and calls from oh, both of them. Wow. And they're all like giving me pep talks. You can't quit. This is just a bad day. You'll be better. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to do anything rash. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go downstairs and have some dinner. And I went down and had a huge thing of lasagna, came back up, kind of just thought about the predicament. There's the dog barking. Thought about the predicament and I uh, said, I'm going to sleep on it. But uh, yeah, yeah, I was a little rash when I got in. I'll just chill. But I was worried because the next day was snowy, rain. It was also 118 miles from Fernie to Eureka, which you know, Eureka, Montana, which was the next town with any supplies. And so the thought of going out and sleeping in that weather by myself in grizzly country terrified Didn't me. Didn't sound actually. like fun. Oh, well, forget even fun. It I, just it terrified I, I me, especially. Actually, I was going to ask you after the experience that I had had up there, where I was like alone before Jackie came, thinking I could be alone in the wilderness, and I'm screwed. I mean, what what am I doing? I was going to ask you about fear. Yeah, well, that was the only time I really had fear, but because I was the the alone part of it, I was really just feeling like this is dangerous. I've got three kids. I've got a wife. What am I doing? Um, why am I making this selfish decision to do this There are bears out thing? there. Oh yeah. my gosh, you have to listen to Grace's explanation of her fear of bears and, I didn't and what happened. A, I didn't even have a fear, fear of bears. So to me, that was just kind of like a carnival attraction that was out there. Yeah. But, I, oh. but, but the thought of being alone in this whole thing, I was just, I just was hitting me wrong. She has a hilarious <laughs> uh, I look forward to um, listening to experience it. with that. So anyway, so I, I went to bed that night and I woke up in the morning and one other aside from this is back in January, I put out a, a request from First Ascent's alumni saying, I'm doing this race and I'd like some inspiration. Does anyone want to share their stories? I might write a book. Maybe I'll include your stories. Unfortunately, I, I kind of went silent on the whole thing because I threw out my back and I wasn't sure if I was doing the race. So right. I only ended up getting a couple of those. 
So I woke up that next morning and read one and totally changed everything. I said, I said, you can't quit. Can't quit. This is why I'm doing this. I'm raising all this money. These people have to go through chemo. What am I? I, I'm I'm in one piece. I just had a bad day. Right. So that kind of put me back. And then I got really lucky. I I met a couple guys at breakfast that morning that had equally horrible days the day before and they were in no hurry to get out. Yeah. And then when I was pulling my bike out to go out and hit the road, there was another guy in the bike storage room, really friendly, jovial guy named Wayne. Um, we started talking. He was from Pittsburgh. And I said, oh, I'm a Washington Capitals fan. We just beat you. And, and we, anyway, we hit it off from our, our hockey. And I told him how I was, how the day went yesterday and how I was doing this alone. He said, what are you, out of your mind? You shouldn't be doing this alone. And I and then the other two from breakfast came down. And it turned out he was riding with them. And we all started talking. And I said, hey, you mind if I tag along? So I ended up joining up with them. Nice. And Wayne is now the greatest guy in the world. I rode with him right to the finish. Thanks, Wayne. So many shout outs. Oh, Wayne's awesome. He's just... Jackie and... I'll I'll be life friends with him. I'm sure I'll do more adventures with him. Awesome. Your very best day. Was your very best day the last day? No. Okay. No. My very best day was in Colorado. What made it the best? Well, I love Colorado. There were a couple things that made it the best. One, I was just happy to be here in Colorado. This is my playground. We've been coming here since I was a kid and I eventually I'll probably live here, but... There were two things. So one, we were um, leaving from Stagecoach State Park just outside of Steamboat, and we were doing a full day to, to uh, Silverthorne. And in Silverthorne, my wife was meeting me, which is also against race rules. But like I said, rules schmulls. <laughs> just as an aside, the irony of this whole race, everyone who does this race is somebody who either has a screw loose or is pretty much a rebel in life. And these are people who rules really so these little stupid rules i was just like i, I kind of knew going in i wasn't about winning the damn thing so right. there's i'm gonna ride every mile and i'm not gonna accept any help that's gonna really give me any kind of advantage but i'm gonna definitely see my wife when You're i not get gonna to hop in a truck and have them no of course not <laughs> and i'll do my own fixes but i'm gonna see my wife when i pass through silverthorne and then the other part of it is um, we had a group of friends and first ascents people who were going to meet me in silverthorne and we were gonna have a big dinner so I was just really energized that whole day after, you know, it was basically day 17 or so to get there. Yeah. And so it was this, it was hot day, but it was a beautiful ride. And, and, I, and more than halfway there. Yeah. yeah we, uh, we, we were, well, we were more than halfway there passing through the Great Basin in Wyoming. But at that point, that day we hit under a thousand miles to the finish. So that was momentous. So it was all those things. It was a beautiful Colorado day, riding in the mountains I love, and I get to see my wife and friends for dinner. And so that was just a great day. Beautiful. Did you have any mantras that you would say over and over again? Or well, any- I thought of Ken. You Ken thought Clover, of Ken yeah. Clover? Ken Clover. I commit. I won't quit. You're better than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. That was come with a couple of the mantras. Other than that, I, I, I don't get too cheesy. I just, music was kind of carried me through. Okay. Lucky Charms? I ate everything in sight, but not Lucky Charm. I know, I know what you're asking. No, not really. I'm not really that superstitious. Okay. Other shout outs to people. You've done a lot of uh, well, the two of the Well, two of the guys I met in Fernie were uh, Mario and Vincent Hamill. They're from Montreal, father-son tandem. Oh, nice. Great guys. Um, they rode with us through Steamboat. And then for various reasons, they went off without us because we were getting bikes serviced. And we thought we'd catch up to them. And by the time we did catch up to him about six days later, it was because Vincent, the son, had a derailleur problem. And we were in this little resort area called Platoro in, in, in uh, southern Colorado, almost the New Mexico border. And he needed a part that had to be sent there. And it was oh. going to take two to three days for FedEx to get it to him. So we passed, had lunch with them, and then we finished a couple of days ahead of him. And then there was a friend of Wayne's who had done the Transamerica ride that he met a couple of years ago named Chuck. And Chuck is 68 years old. And he's from North Carolina. He's a, a retired ship captain. And uh, he joined us in Lima, Montana, and had apparently been chasing us for days, just watching us on the track leader's website. 
So he joined up with us and pretty much rode off and on with us through Pytown, New Mexico. Yeah, Pytown, New Mexico on day 28. Awesome guy. Just inspirational. 68 years old doing this. Nice. Um, he, he wasn't doing it as a race. He started with the group, but he was just doing the ride. So he, you know, because he's smarter than we are, he skipped Coco Claims on day two and, and went the old route, which is uh, a route down through Sparwood, Canada, and, and then it takes you to the border without having to do that heinous evil rock thing <laughs> heinous evil rock thing that'll be heinous evil pernicious yes any adjective you think of how did completing the tour divide change your life in, still, a, in a nutshell i'm still processing that yeah. i don't know if it has you know i'm pretty secure in in where i am in life i wasn't going to do this race to try to find myself or to try to solve some spiritual need or fill some hole in my life it was just something i wanted to do and raise money for first ascents and take on a challenge I think I'm, I don't know if I'm more introspective. I think I'm quieter since I've been back, even though I'm talking a lot here. <sighs> Certainly the first two to three weeks, my wife found me to be fairly distant and I still kind of feel that a little bit. I haven't fully re-engaged in society yet and I don't know if I will again. I was, I was a political junkie before I left, read every news article I could about politics, about Trump, about everything going on in the world. And I haven't read a paper. I've been back a month. I haven't read a newspaper. I haven't been interested. I just haven't cared. You know, I'm doing some of the work. I'm, a, I'm an attorney and I do real estate work. And so I've done some of the work that, you know, re- returned to doing my career work. But I, for the outside world part of it, I'm just not as engaged. And I just don't really care to hear about people's dramas and I, health dramas. Yes, yes. But not the, the yeah. typical BS dramas that people go through and the materialistic, superficial stuff. I'm just not It did paying change attention. your life then. I mean, this, so is, I guess, this is fascinating. Well, I don't know if that's short term or long term. And I haven't been home yet either. I've, I came right oh. out to, to Vail, Colorado, where we have a vacation home. And we, I've been here all summer. So I, I've had kind of a like a purgatory between the time of the tour ending and the time I go back to real, real life Right. back in, in Rockville, Maryland. Right. So you're going to write a book. You are writing a book yep. about the tour divide. I'm halfway through. And why do you want to write the book? Well, I've uh, several reasons. One, I just want to get it all down, memorialize it, both for myself and for my family. Someday my kids and their kids will have this memoir, basically, of this crazy experience that their father and grandfather did. So it's kind of for personal reasons, that's why. Two, I just think it's a cool story. And I'm an English major and I like to write and maybe I have a way of... Oh, I kept a, a blog through the through the tour that each day I would post on Facebook. And the feedback I got from people, they just loved reading it. So that kind of... It was a great blog. So it was cool. So I, I that actually gave me a lot of inspiration through the through the trip, it gave me something to do at night before I went to bed was typing up the day's experiences. And then I loved the people's comments to when I would post it, the people's comments weren't just gratuitous. They were people really loved reading it and couldn't wait to see the next one. So that kind of said, all right, maybe maybe I do have something here that people will like to read and not just my friends. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain ego to that, like to share something and make people smile or like what you're doing. And then the other side is from the charity aspect, I'm, I'm raising more awareness and potentially more money for First Ascents too. Right. And if I do happen to sell this thing, I'll, you know, a bunch of proceeds from the book, I'm going to donate to the, to the charity. Excellent. Wow. So tomorrow morning, you're going to do your 12th Leadville Trail 100 mountain bike race, which should seem like a yawn at this point, <laughs> right? <laughs> kind of. I mean, it's, I, I joke that this is going to be the first year I probably sleep the night before. Yeah. In all the other years, I'm nervous, okay. but after doing the tour divide, every night I go to bed waking up having to do the Leadville 100 the next day. So kind of just like, all right, another 100-mile ride, no big deal. I mean, it's a big deal. It's hard, but I definitely am looking at it way differently than the prior 11. So what's your goal for tomorrow? My goal, I don't, uh, I'd be, li- well, 
I don't know where I am. I, I don't know whether I'm recovered. Because I've done, you, you were here a couple of weeks ago, and and you thought that you were going to be able to go for a sub nine, but you did a ride, and you came in and you said, "I don't know, I'm not recovered yet." I just don't know. I it's funny. I've I've done a bunch of rides in the Vale area where single climbs. I've actually done faster than I ever have before without even trying. So I know I'm strong. I just don't know when you start adding up the 50, 60 miles whether I'm strong to do a race, and I don't know whether the tortifieds can start killing me late in the race. So my first goal is go out and do 40 miles, first 40, and see where I am. And for a sub nine pace, my, my best ever is 8.54. So if I'm going to do sub nine, I'd love to beat my best because I'm competitive. But if I'm over two hours and 50 minutes to the 40 mile spot, I'm just going to lay back and my goal will just be finished and enjoy the day. And if I'm under 250, then the competitive juices will kick in and I'll try to beat my best. All right. But I don't, I don't, I really don't know. And I'm not going into it saying I have to, or I'm stressing about it. I'm just okay. going to go out and ride 40 miles and see how I feel. Nice. And I'll see you at the 40-mile yes. point. Tips to people interested in maybe doing either the tour or the LT100? Well, the LT100... Completely different animals. It's so different. I I mean, I've gotten friends who aren't even mountain bikers to do the LT100 and, and have success with it. So at the end of the day, that's just training for one event. Um, obviously, you need to have some technical skills. But to me, anybody can do it if you put your mind to it, LT100. It's, it's a one-day thing. You go hard for a day. It's, it's grueling. It's painful. But that night you have a big dinner and you go to sleep and the next day you sit on the couch and there's no, and then you sit and smile about it all year unless you don't hit your 12 hours. And then you come back the next year because it's in your blood. <laughs> so I, as long as you can ride a bike and especially a mountain bike, you can, I, you can teach yourself to do the level 100 and train for it. And I don't, I don't want to hear, I hate when people give me excuses that they can't do it because I'm prime example of someone who went from the couch to the level 100. And I have another friend who'd never ridden a mountain bike. He was a road biker and 62 years old, three years ago, convinced him to do a, get on a mountain bike and learn how to ride it and ride the level 100. He came out within 12 months of learning how to ride a mountain bike and did it in 11 hours at 62 years old. So wow. yeah, that's whether it's an Ironman. I mean, that's kind of also the purpose of my book is I want to try to inspire you know people in midlife to, to get out of their ruts and go do something, go find adventure, go seek a challenge. And try to, you know, get out of just the the normal humdrum existence that they might be having, and, and it can be done. It's not. It's just putting your mind to it. Mm -hmm. And the Tour Divide, totally different beast. I can't recommend it to too many people. I really can't. I don't know too many people that could do it or would do it or uh, would succeed at it. Okay. Um, I'm not saying I'm special. I'm just saying I have the right mindset for it, and I don't know a lot of people that I think would enjoy it, including some of my best friends. Do you think you have to have a goal or a mission or something that you're doing it for that's beyond just you in order to accomplish something like that? Like you have, I don't think you have you, FD. I don't think you have to, but I think that helps. Yeah. There were definitely a lot of places in the race where I was at low points, including that day too, right. where I kind of needed that inspiration to keep going because otherwise I would say, why the hell am I doing this to myself? And what's the point? Is there a point? Mm -hmm. If I'm just doing it for me and not for you know, other people. Then I'm done. Then, yeah, I probably check out six or seven times. Yeah. Um, but because that's there and that mission's there, I'm always thinking about why I'm doing it. That yeah. always pushed me on. And also it's, you know, when you take a step back and you look at it, it's, it's the coolest adventure of the world. I mean, you're out riding your bike. You know, it's simple. Get up in the morning, ride your bike, figure out how to eat and drink, stop riding your bike, go to sleep, wake up, do it again. There's no, there's no bills to pay. There's no kids to feed. There's no anything. It's just, you're just living for yourself. Would you do it again? The tour divide. I wouldn't do it as a race and I wouldn't do it for a while. I would love to bike pack and tour, maybe not 30 days, but I, I really love that adventure 
being out there. I just, what I didn't like was the stress of having to get somewhere the next day, having to put in the miles, um, having to go through horrible weather, horrible conditions when I could have just stayed in a hotel and chilled. Right. I would also like to do it with friends. I, I wouldn't do it solo. And even though I made good friends on this, it's not the same as your you know home friends and yeah. your buddies. Yeah. So I'd love to go like on a, on a seven day trip with my buddies. Mm-hmm. And tour that way. We're on a road tour with my wife where we're staying in nice hotels every night. Nice. Yes. Is there a bigger physical challenge that is on your bucket list now? Or is your bucket list, is your bucket empty? I can't think of anything. My bucket list right now is empty. Your bucket is empty. Yeah. I can't think of anything I want to do adventure. It's, I'll maybe come up with something, but this was, I jumped right to the, to me, the most incredible, crazy thing I could possibly do. I mean, they, they say this is the hardest bike race in the world. Yeah. So where where do I go Did from here? Did someone win it? Can, yeah. Can you win it? You can. Yeah. It's it's an unofficial race. It's right. an underground race. I right. mean, there's no entry fee. You just yeah. send a commitment letter to this guy named Matthew Lee saying I'm 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 committed. There's no one even at the finish line. There's no support. There's nothing. Right. It's right. Just, you're just on a you're a dot on a Grace, website. Grace was funny about that too. Yeah. yeah. You're just a dot on a website and you follow other people and. But I no, I can't think of anything. I don't know what else I could do. Well, you'll have to consider that because that that'll have to be part of your book, right? You'll have to have yeah. I, I, well, that's one of the questions. Next? Do I need to? Right. I'm 50. I'll be 51. Do I need to have a bigger challenge now or do I just keep doing Leadville and riding and being with my friends and family? And is that enough? I don't know. That's mm. that's one of the things I'm waiting to see. To be decided. Yeah. What do you love about Leadville? Uh, love you guys. <laughs> I love coming to the Lead Ass Inn every year. <laughs> and you and your husband have been awesome. And I love both of you. I don't know. It's just a cool vibe here. The whole race has just got into my blood, like I said, in 2007, and it's never left. It's always been that beacon. And it's also, that also is the charity. I mean, I turned, you know, our little first team FD into, a, we now have 25 riders a year raising 100, over 100,000 a year. So, and I'm kind of the titular head of the team FD Leadville. So I take a lot of pride in, in that. And that keeps me coming back every year. And it's just, I love it. I, I love doing this race and I love Leadville and, and just the whole vibe from beginning to end. Keeps I me honest too, sorry. Makes keep... me stay in shape all year. There you go. <laughs> and you, you lost you how many? You can't many, fake this one. How many pounds did you lose doing the tour? Uh, let's see. I came in about 147. Um, I started at 159, so I lost 12 pounds. Wow. But just for comparison, I was 175 when Alan challenged me to do Leadville in 2006. Oh my goodness. And I was 187 when I graduated college, so... Wow, different hard guy. to believe. You different, were a different guy. Now, guy. now I'm like one. Uh, since the t- since the tour, I've been eating a lot of ice cream, <laughs> so I'm back up to about 152, which nice. is still one of my lower race starts for Leadville. Well, Brent, I wish you no physical, no mechanical failures tomorrow. <laughs> a beautiful day, and it's supposed to be hot. It's supposed to be hot. That's one of my kryptonites. Yeah, yeah. We'll it's not usually hot in Leadville. I know. It's still there's still like a possibility. There's always a possibility that it could sleet on you somewhere. I'll take it. And that would be wonderful. Absolutely. I hate heat. Brent, what what kind of preserves would you spread on your toast in the morning? Do you have toast? Uh, mostly eat cereal. Mostly cereal? Granolas. If you had to have toast, what? Probably strawberry. Strawberry? Or All grape. Right. Oh, grape. Strawberry or grape. All right. Well, there you have it. Brent Goldstein, thank you so much for being on alligator preserves and i will have photos and links to all the things we discussed and ways that you can be involved listeners with first descents an amazing organization you really you really need to look into that firstdescents.org there you go thanks laura as a side note to my listeners out there i have known brent goldstein for many many years and i might even be able to say that i was the first person to get some of his stories published in a book called Not Your Mother's Book, 
on being a stupid kid. He has two nonfiction stories published in that work, and I own all the last run editions of that book. So if you're interested in his other stories from when he was a crazy youth and other people's stories as well, be in touch with me and I'll I'll, uh, see if I can hook you up with one of those books or more because I have several. And remember, you can find today's show notes with links and photos on my website at leadvillelaurel.com. So head on over there and there'll be some links to First Ascents and some of the other organizations that Brent mentioned. And if you enjoyed this and other episodes, please subscribe to Alligator Preserves wherever you get your podcast and tell your friends about it and think about supporting me on Patreon. Check out the rewards you'll receive at patreon.com slash alligator preserves and join me next time when I'll talk about something completely different. I think I'll go have some strawberry preserves on some gluten-free toast this morning because I'm hungry now after listening to Brent's story. (laughs) Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCarg with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCarg. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.